Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about loot, essentially how we deal with treasure in role-playing games. Before we get into all that valuable stuff, what is going on? Well, I hear the two of you have been doing some reading recently in a quite vocal manner. Reading aloud. Yeah, we both did story readings, or at least story excerpt readings, for the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. So yes, thank you very much to Chris and Chad for inviting us to do that. Which story was it that you did a reading of, Paul? So I read Lost Memory by Peter Phillips, in which there's a well, a metallic kind of android-like voice that gets tortured at the end, and I had to sort of think of ways of, <laughs> of reading this in kind of character, which was a lot of fun and hopefully went down okay. Channel your inner Davros, that's what you need to yeah, do. Yeah, it was kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did a reading from Josephine Brennan's The Horrid Chilton Castle, which I hadn't read for donkey's years, which was a lot of fun to revisit. It's a creepy little tale. And I'd forgotten just how many Irish names there were in there, which I didn't have a clue how to pronounce. So I called upon our good friend John Casey to give me some help with that. And he happily managed to help me avoid any cultural embarrassments there. And last weekend, at time of recording, I was at Games Expo in Birmingham on the Chaosium stand. We had copies of Cults of Cthulhu and Time to Harvest in hardback, and they all went pretty quick. And I met a number of people, friends of the show, and I'd like to say hi to all of those. A good weekend, all in all. And I'd also like to mention that the Write Your First Adventure course, which has run, I think, a couple of times now, on the storytellingcollective.com is running again in the summer. I think it starts in July 2022 and enrollment starts in June. And again, actually, I met somebody at Expo who had done the course and I think published a scenario on the Miskatonic repository through it. And this time they're also adding in a RuneQuest track. So if you want to write an adventure, your first adventure for either Call of Cthulhu or RuneQuest, check that out. And I will try to sort out a discount code for people who back us on Patreon. And now on to our main topic, loot. Whether we're talking about magic items, jewels raided from a dragon's hoard, or a Call of Cthulhu investigator's monthly paycheck, acquiring money and other valuables can play a key role in a lot of RPGs. But what is the purpose of all this? What appeal does it all hold? And can we actually make it interesting? I have opinions. I kind of feel like we should be singing the Monty Pythons, there is nothing quite as wonderful as money song. <laughs> it's a gas. Money in some games, obviously, the default thing is, is we just hand wave it, isn't it? In some mm. games. In other games, it's quite an important thing. Particularly, you know, like, in the early games, D&D and so on, and games where equipment and progression and uh, games of, uh, what's the word? It starts with A, like accumulation, acquisition. It's an important thing. It's like you're getting experience points, but you're getting gold and you're buying 
better equipment, and there's that kind of economy in there. Well, in some games, gold is experience points. Well, indeed. I do like in the uh, the little summary intro that Scott gave that, well, it can be a Call of Cthulhu character's monthly paycheck. I would love to see a Call of Cthulhu investigator that actually is able to keep down a job in-game long <laughs> enough to be able to get a monthly paycheck after play starts. <laughs> Whether you're running around the world, jumping between different countries in some glow-popping campaign, or you're not gibbering in a corner in a sanitarium, that uh, the actual prospect of still being paid seems like a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to the idea of how important it is in D&D, I think that's led to it sort of bleeding through in people's minds as being important in other games as well, even when it's often not. So... I've seen a lot of questions online, particularly in places like Reddit, where you get a lot of people who are new to Call of Cthulhu, where they're really hung up on characters' incomes and starting equipment and what will they be able to buy and equipment lists and stuff like that. And I wonder how much of that is simply because they've come from a game like D&D and this is the expectation there, so they consider that it's going to be just as important here. And as a result, it's it's ended up being this almost cultural artefact that's in Call of Cthulhu, even when most of the time it doesn't really need to be. Yeah, I mean, if we take a, a scenario and your character is particularly wealthy, well, could they not employ some bodyguards? Can I hire some bodyguards? And some scenarios, that's not going to make any difference. You know, they, they're going to get dispatched by the horror or, or whatever. But other scenarios, maybe that is actually going to be useful. Can I pay off the local police to escape being put in jail or, or whatever? If you've got enough money, you can achieve quite a lot of things in the real world. And I guess it's the same in game, isn't it? Yeah, I did actually play an interesting Call of Cthulhu game recently with Grizzly Peaks. It hasn't gone out yet, I believe, but this is one that Andy Goodman wrote. It's a 1970s-based, sort of fairly sleazy, creepy 70s horror-type thing set on a Spanish island. But one of the players, TJ, decided that he was going to play this playboy billionaire type who i think ended up having a credit rating of something like 99 so he was genuinely one of the wealthiest people in the world and so he mm. basically turned up at this island with his private yacht and an entire staff and all this equipment for exploring and scuba diving which i think presented fairly unique challenges for Andy as a GM, but he did a very good job of incorporating the whole thing into it and having the staff meet unfortunate fates and using the exploration, the scuba diving aspect of it to great horrific effect and so on. So it, it all ended up working out quite well. But I agree, there is that worry that extreme wealth can basically end up shielding Call of Cthulhu investigators from the world in a way which makes it difficult to create a horrific game. Credit rating does not provide an armour for sanity rating. 
No, but it does provide players an excuse not to risk their characters if they are risk averse. I mean, we've talked about this in games before where you sometimes get that one person who really wants to protect their character and doesn't want to engage with the horror. And credit rating is like the ultimate armor for doing that. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, well, I could go down to the crypt and take a look at this weird thing down there, or I could just send one of my manservants to do it. Hmm. And we mentioned credit rating. So in 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, credit rating kind of changed. In the old editions, it was more of a gauge of social status and class. And I kind of wanted it to be more of a gauge of your wealth because it, it was both things at once previously. Mm. And the two things aren't completely linked you can be upper class and not have as much money or lower class and have lots of money but certainly in britain the two kind of go hand in hand largely i would say would you not or not would you disagree i'd say that's much more of an american thing where money equals social class okay i'd say that in the uk it's very much not that social class and money are two different things like you say and i think this is probably the case in a lot of europe where there's this concept of new money or arrivists or whatever where people might be wealthy but they don't have class they don't have breeding and I think credit rating sort of conflates those two things. And I think the way it's defined in the game, it works much better in an American context than perhaps in a traditional British one. I suppose it depends what we understand by the, yeah, by the term class. If we're talking about influence and the ability to affect things in the world, then money kind of does that perhaps more than class class will open doors to you in certain situations i'd say in the uk it's a bit of both particularly in the mm. 1920s i'd say things changed a lot in the 1980s through to the modern day but if you're going back to the classic 1920s setting then social class will probably open a lot more doors than money will so in call of cthulhu money is abstracted to credit rating so you've got a scale it's a skill from one to a hundred and the lower your credit rating, the less money you have, obviously. But one point of credit rating in the single digits between one and nine, one point of that is perhaps worth a dollar, whereas one point in the upper scale, like between 90 and 100, each point of that is worth a lot more. So it's not just a flat linear scale where every point is worth, you know, say $100 or something. So there are bands. So these various bands abandoned into what we call living standards. So if you've got a low credit rating, you're quite poorly off and it dictates your living standards. So if you've got a credit rating of between 10 and 49, it's quite a broad band, but you're average. And we all kind of, I think, get what we mean by average. And in the game, the idea is that if you're living within what we would perceive as everyday average kind of means in the modern day yeah i can drive to milton Keynes. i've got a car i'll probably get a house it might be partly mine you know i might partly own it or it might be rented i can go to restaurants and buy meals but i'm not going to like five-star hotels in the middle of london and i'm not flying on a private jet because that wouldn't fit my living standards and i think if people are sort of acting within those living 
standards, then you can broadly just hand wave what they do in the game. It's really just when they do things. So I'm in the 1920s, we're a bunch of poor characters, say, and suddenly we need to go to New York. Well, how do you do that? I think the intention here is that can add to the game. You can hand wave it if you just want to, or you can say, well, how are you actually going to get the money? And then maybe tempt them with some criminal job or taking money from loan sharks. Or stowing away on the ship. Oh, yeah, great. Stowing away on the Titanic <laughs> or whatever, but stowing away on a ship, right? So if you do it right, it can build some interesting things into your story because a lack of money has started a lot of interesting stories in people's lives. I don't think this happens so much in one shot. So I think it's something that is going to occur occasionally more in campaigns. Is this something we've ever encountered? Where I've run campaigns of Call of Cthulhu or Pop Cthulhu, I very deliberately tried to set things up so that money isn't an issue for the player characters, so that they have someone who is financing them or they have access to the resources they need to get around and buy basic equipment and so on. Because both as a GM and as a player, I generally get no enjoyment out of trying to manage all that. And... I want to be able to hand wave it. I have certainly written stuff where lack of resources is a plot device. So, for example, Bleak Prospect, which is set during the Great Depression. The characters in it are all living in a shanty town and basically have absolutely nothing. And that provides a very significant social barrier and a constraint on how they can approach things. And that, I think, you know, in that case, as you say, does provide for some interesting role-playing opportunities and challenges to overcome. But in a regular game, if there's, say, some international travel involved and is sort of, oh, the bad guys are running away and they're heading off to Cairo now and we've got to follow them, I don't want to spend a session sitting there with the characters sorting out their finances trying to work out how the hell they're going to do this this is what indiana jones red line on the map was designed for just skip to montage the red line in an indiana jones film doesn't start off with him going and talking to his bank manager about extending his overdraft i think that's very much a pulp there i think haven't we literally got the red line rule in pulp i think of getting around the world yeah so, I mean, the way you would do it in Call of Cthulhu, if you were playing a campaign and you wanted to sort of like incorporate that, you've also got, as part of your credit rating, you've also got something called assets, which you can draw on. And then when you do your investigative development phase, that can then change your credit rating. And again, that's kind of abstracted and simplified. But it just gives a track because I think people, like you said, Matt, at the start, how many people are actually sticking with their job and getting a paycheck? So if you are playing an ongoing game, your credit rating is probably going to drop unless you're going to, uh, I don't know, some lost pyramid in Peru and finding <laughs> like loads of gold that you can take home and melt down and sell. That'd be a good idea. As your sanity dwindles, probably your, your money is also dwindling. Your resources are also dwindling away. And again, it's not something that features in Call of Cthulhu very often in our games 
but I can see other people, perhaps especially if they are coming from a sort of D&D game, they might wish to incorporate that. It's certainly there if you wish to. I can see it being used effectively to create tension like that. I guess I'm just worried about bean counting because all right yeah i mean credit rating does try to abstract some of that but we're still potentially talking about this to some extent when we're talking about assets and dwindling resources and so on where you do have those interminable discussions about oh what can we afford what equipment can we get i don't know i used to quite enjoy that stuff when i was younger i don't know why but there seemed to be something far more, I guess, empowering about this idea of, oh, yeah, I can manage these resources and improve my character through money this way. And by managing my character's resources, I can know exactly what they can get and so on. And now, I don't know, it just seems like a faff. Mm. I mean, you can handle it, but it depends on your GM, how they sort of deal with that in that case, doesn't it? Mm. You're very much at the GM's mercy on that one if, if they're just kind of hand-waving things and making that decision. So in the investigation development phase, I mean, you were talking about bean counting, but it's very much abstracted. So there's like about half a dozen things that can happen. So investigative development phase, you've finished a scenario or you've come to the end of a, a chapter of a campaign, and then you can just look at a few statements. So life goes on as usual. Well, there's no change. You know, you, you're living within your means and everything. If it is clear that you had to leave your job to travel around the world and you haven't got any obvious sort of income, there's a heading called tightening one's belt or selling the family silver, and you just knock 1d10 off your credit rating. So there's that feeling that all oh, my credit rating is going down. You know, if you're living through the financial crash uh, of, of like, was it 29? You might lose 1d100 credit rating. So you could be quite a well-off person and suddenly, you know, there's a massive character change that you're down onto to single digits of credit rating. And I think I have encountered in the game in scenarios when we're offered a suitcase full of cash to do something. I've definitely had that. You know, there's a, mm. there's a monetary reward if you're going to do this thing. And if it's like, well, $100 or whatever, yeah, fine, you know. But if it's just your daily rate as a private investigator – definitely hand wave but if it's like you go around to the cultist place and there's a suitcase there with a million dollars in it that's a big suitcase it's a big suitcase they're big <laughs> bills matt they're big bills if we manage to get away with that if that's what we decide to do then you know i think that should put up our credit rate in a bit and that would just be like i don't know well there's a thing called i'm rich and you add 1d10 to your credit rating so you kind of bump it up that way i do remember coming across in one of those campaigns a very large, like a steamer trunk or a suitcase full of money and saying proudly to everyone around me, oh, guys, look, there's 5,000 pounds in this thing. And everyone's looking at me going, hang on, didn't the GM just say like 10,000? No, no, five, that's all I'm telling <laughs> you there's in here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That opens up another can of worms when players decide to hide money from other players. <laughs> or, you know, steal is another word for that. Safekeeping. So other systems, how they deal with loot. I looked at Blades in the Dark because I recalled that that had a, a system which abstracts money. And this is, I think, games either just you count the coins, you count the dollars, you count the pounds, you count the gold pieces and silver pieces and the copper pieces and exchange them and so on, or it abstracts them. And 
Blades in the Dark abstracts them. So it uses a thing called coin. So one coin is a purse full of silver pieces, equivalent to a week's wages. I'm not sure who for, but a week's wages. Two coins, it is linear, so it's two weeks wages or the income of a small business. Four coins is a satchel full of silver, up to 10 coins. And this tells you something about the world. It's liquidating a significant asset, such as a carriage and goats. I guess goats pull carriages. A horse, so it's implying a horse would be 10 coins. That'd be like 10 weeks wages or the deed to a small property. And again, so a horse is worth as much as a small house fine and there's things like four coins or more is an impractical amount to keep lying around so that's like ostentatious wealth just to have you wouldn't have that much lying around and there's rules about how you things that you can spend a coin on so you can spend a coin say to get an additional activity during downtime so you can sort of use it to to sort of fuel your character's development or to avoid certain entanglements like sort of bribes and so on and much like call of cthulhu it has that idea of assets a similar kind of thing. It's got sort of living standard bands and stash and retirement. So when your character sort of takes their final trauma and they're retired from the game, then you kind of get to see, you know, how they ended up. Did they end up in the gutter or do they end up like in a plush apartment with uh, servants and luxuries? Have you guys come across any game systems that abstract loot in an interesting way or a, or a not interesting way, in a good way or a bad way, would you say? Well, you reminded me just before we started recording of Dread, the first book of Pandemonium, and I wish you'd done so a bit earlier because I would have checked these rules. But I do remember that all items in it are abstracted to a generic cost, that it's not broken down in terms of dollars and cents, that it's a particular value. And so, yeah, you do have perhaps the rather odd thing that really cheap things and mildly inexpensive things are all lumped together. And it, there doesn't seem to be much of a mechanical difference between those and really expensive things. I, before we were starting to record, you were mentioning, I can't remember what it was, something about uh, how many pencils it would take to buy an airliner. Yeah, because I'm sure like one unit of whatever they called it, like money, you could buy something like a biro, mm. you know, so something really inexpensive. And then it, it, it stepped up through the ranks to 10 was like, I don't know, like an airliner or something. So it's like, well, can I use 10 biros to buy an airliner? <laughs> Maybe we weren't doing it justice and actually reading it properly. But I do remember, you know, people trying to do that <laughs> it was a bit weird it's very difficult i think abstracting money it seems like you should be able to it's not an easy thing to do but you get weird things like that even if you don't abstract money i remember an old school game i played a while back where there was separate cost lists for items that you'd find in uh, for sale in cities as opposed to the countryside mm. and the price differentials were quite steep there it wasn't like everything was more expensive in the city some things were a lot cheaper and i think we worked out that you could just abandon adventuring and make a hell of a lot more money by, I can't remember which way around it was, but basically importing staves, like fighting staves, and exchanging them for dogs and exporting the dogs. 
I mean, isn't that international trade? <laughs> it is, but this was so market <laughs> that it was like you could do tenfold the money, just popping outside the city walls, buying a dog, coming back in, exchanging it for some staves, going back out, and fuck dungeoneering. That's where the money is. Dogs and staves. Yeah, I mean, we're making light of it, but that kind of is where the money is, isn't it, in, in the real world? I mean, you know, you make things in one country and you sell them in another. Yeah, but this was like 10 miles apart, potentially. Yeah, yeah. The only time I've really ever come across money in any significant way in game is actually part of character gen, where you have X amount of money to go and purchase equipment. But that's mm. about as close as I can think of, really. It's just not a part of the games, really, that I play. There's maybe one exception with Deadlands, that there's relics that you can pick up, which is a kind of a generic term that the GM can use to create their own magic items without too much restrictive rules on how they're created. It's, it's kind of like, here, here's a plot device or some random MacGuffin that I'm going to give you that's imbued with certain power that can do whatever they want with it within the context of the story. But yeah, the, the few times I've picked them up are probably the few times I can think of where I've had loot. And is that something that you would potentially acquire at the start of the game or is something you find as you're playing uh you can i believe if you take certain advantages in the game or edges that you can maybe start with them but when we played deadlands they'd normally been picked up in the course of play with those sort of systems where you've got to buy equipment at the start i'm always like well how much detail do i need to say i've got shoes yeah <laughs> if i don't put those on the sheet do i not have shoes do i have socks <laughs> like, yeah, I absolutely hate doing that. This is, again, something that I've encountered sometimes in Call of Cthulhu, where players who've come from games where that's much more important, they do want to detail every single thing their characters own or assume that if it's not on their character sheet, they don't have it. And I don't think that's fun for anyone, Call of Cthulhu. The only reason I can see it working in games like particularly old-school D&D, or I guess to some extent more recent versions of D&D, is that a big part of the gameplay there is resource management, and money is a resource there. As we said, mm. I mean, it can equate to XP, but... It's more important, it allows you to acquire new items, it allows you to acquire new magical artifacts, potentially, and it's a way of improving your character, it's a way of repairing your character when they get damaged through healing potions or whatever. And so as a result, money is an important resource there in a way that it's not necessarily in a lot of other games. And what games have you played that have, like, gold as XP? It is something that comes up in a few OSR games, but it's not something you see very often these days. But I guess it makes as much sense as anything else if you're talking about experience points. Because, yeah, all right, you can award experience points in a D&D-like game for fighting monsters, and... That, to me, makes about as much sense as accumulating gold because it puts a certain focus on the type of gameplay you're trying to encourage. If it's about acquiring gold, you're assuming that there's going to be a lot of looting or thieving or exploration involved. If it's about fighting monsters, you're assuming it's going to be very combat-heavy. 
alternatively you could just make it milestone based and sort of say right you know you've completed this big thing all right you get a chunk of xp for that or there's all sorts of other mechanics that allow you to award xp amongst players or just for attending the game or for doing something notable or whatever but ultimately it's a design choice about the kind of gameplay you want to encourage and if it's based on gold, then yeah, you're saying that that's what this game is about. Well, I mean, you said about combat and gold. I mean, if it is rewarded for getting gold, as it is in some games, it's like, well, we don't need to fight the monsters then. Yeah. We're actually better off getting in, sneaking in, doing it by stealth and avoiding combat because we can die in combat. But, you know, if we can get the gold, we can go up levels without dying. Mm. do either of you actually play any games where you award or are awarded xp yeah some of the powered by the apocalypse games definitely right and the free league games where they use the year zero engine that your xp that you award is based on asking the players questions and if they answer yes to them then they get an xp that they can use to get advancements on their sheets so kind of like powered by the apocalypse because cult uses a, a similar thing now yeah so it might be like did you save an innocent yeah that kind of yes thing. i did i get an xp because my character that's one of their motivations right is that the kind of question we're talking about yeah, it's things like, did you participate in the session? Did you learn anything new? Did you learn anything about the truth? Did you encounter a new type of vase? And that kind of thing. It's, say, Colton vase have some similar questions in there. That's very similar to Unknown Armies. One of the questions should be, did you spend half the session looking at your phone? Minus 10 XP. <laughs> <laughs> Another system that I read fairly recently, actually, thanks to uh, Neil, uh, old scouser role-playing on Twitter, is... Barbarians of Lemuria. I don't know if you've come across that, if you've played that. I haven't played it, but I've come across it. Reading through it, I really warmed to it. I mean, I've played it and reading it. The basic rule of character equipment is give the players what they want, it says. Conan never went shopping. Yeah. It says if they're a soldier, let them have armor and a couple of weapons. And then it goes up to if they're a magician, let them have rings, amulets, a star-patterned robe, and a skull-topped staff. Yeah. If they're a noble, let them have a palace in Sartaria and a galley in the port. It's like, oh, okay, really let them have what they want. And then it says, if you want backpacks full of adventuring gear, a weapon for every occasion, three spare suits of armor, and a pack animal to carry it all around for you, then play another game. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was cool. But I think there is something to that in that, again, because of role-playing's origins in D&D, this whole idea that you're working your way up from nothing to the mm. high level, there is this real disconnect between the kinds of characters we see in fiction who we may take as inspiration for the characters we want to play and what the traditional games that we grew up with allow us to do. And I really appreciate something like Barbarians of Lemuria there that sort of says, okay, you want to play Conan, you want to play Elric? Yeah, all right, play them. You don't have to spend a year building up to playing that character. I think then you play that game, you know, Conan, you are going to perhaps go into palaces that are rich with gold. You know, you've only got maybe a sword and a loincloth, but you're going into palaces that are spilling over with gold and jewels and so on. And, you, you know, you're taking the big red eye out of the statue or whatever that's a massive gem. 
how does that impact the game? Aren't you now like rich? And this game really deals with that. I think it says what I just said, you know, they may find like shitloads of, of treasure. Tell them the wealth is beyond their imaginings. If they suggest counting up the value, just laugh at them. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant advice. Because then in advancement, you kind of go home with all this gold, you know, as much as you can kind of carry. And at the end of the game or at the start of the next game, you have to sort of reflect on, well, what did you do with all that big chest of gold that you found? And you tell how, you know, you, you threw parties or you gave it away to some poor people or, or you built your own palace or, you know, how you kind of squandered it and spent it and you're back mm. to kind of where you were. But the better your rendition of what you did with it, you either get like one or two advancement points that you kind of then spend on your character to sort of develop them yeah. in the game, but not through spending the cash directly to buy better armor. You just story tell what you did with all that money. And we see that in the stories, don't we? They might find untold wealth, but then the next story, that all seems to be gone or we don't really worry about it. With the Conan stories, there's some variation there. I mean, in the early ones, oh, sorry, early chronologically for the character, not the ones that were written first, there is, yeah, this thing that he is very much grabbing wealth and then either squandering it or something unfortunate happens. But by the end of it, I mean, he is a king. Yeah. Well, that would be the advancement, right? Yeah. The character advancement points that you can sort of spend to, to, to climb up through those things. I've seen similar mechanics in a number of games where it is, yeah, you squander all your wealth between adventures. And I think that's great because in a fantasy game, an adventure game like that, I mean, perhaps even in a modern pulp game, I don't necessarily want to deal with the repercussions of characters getting great wealth because it's perhaps going to change the characters in ways that you don't want. Again, give them reasons not to engage with the kinds of things that you as a player find fun. They no longer need to acquire the loot that they have people who can do things for them, mm. that they're potentially shielded from consequences. If you can change the concept of the campaign enough that they're simply exchanging one series of problems for another. I mean, for example, let's say that you do have a barbarian adventurer who goes off, gets great wealth, and doesn't squander it, and then buys themselves a palace or a big townhouse or something like that, and they're suddenly potentially having to deal with civilized society and the social life of a city and politics and stuff like that. That could then be a very interesting sort of fish-out-of-water type mm. adventure, but only if everyone's up for that. And, you know, it does involve a fundamental change to the character and the nature of what the campaign's about. But otherwise, just saying, okay, yeah, you, you spent it all on ale and dancing girls and trinkets, and then it's done. That's much simpler. I mean, the weird thing to me is, like, when you look at the original version of D&D &D from 74, it has got that stuff in it about building castles. Mm -hmm. You know, as you go up to, I can't remember, 7th or 8th level or whatever, you know, you can build a small stronghold. Yeah. And you'll have, I don't know, you'll have people that work there and guards and, and all this sort of thing. And it's like, well, how do I factor that into the game? Aren't I going off into a dungeon with a backpack looking for gold? <laughs> 
but now I've got a castle. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get your head around all that. I, I found reading it because it's, it's not something that I've ever done in a game, you know, like a D&D game. The thing I would like to say about particularly D&D games, I've played D&D with a lot of different groups, and in theory, the DM sort of says, okay, you've found this treasure or you've killed this monster and found this treasure or whatever. You've got a chest full of treasure. There's some gold. There's some gems, a magic sword or whatever. And the players go, oh, yeah, we'll write that down on our sheets so everybody gets some gold, you know, somebody gets the sword. It never seems to work like that because it's like, say you got six players, you find 100 gold, so now that doesn't divide by six. So does one person write it down? Do we have a one person that keeps track of all that? Do we divide it up? And then there's like three gems. Well, say four gems, because again, it doesn't divide by six. And, and one of them's worth a thousand gold and one of them's worth 10 gold or whatever. So they're, they're all different values. So it's like, how do you actually in-game share that out? Mm-hmm. And I have had the experience of people, oh, well, you know, Bob writes all that down. So Bob writes all the treasure down that keeps it simple because it keeps the game flowing we don't have to stop but what happens when somebody gets hit by a disintegration ray from a beholder will they carry in a share of the treasure do we lose a sixth of that treasure and some of the items on that treasure are unique so did they have that thing also like the gm will sort of say oh you find a potion it's in a blue bottle don't know what it is and i look around the table nobody's writing that down (laughs) Should I write it down? Or maybe like two people write it down. So there's a lot of like that thing of when you're giving out treasure, I'm interested in how different groups actually manage that because it does seem like a problematic thing to me and problematic in the way that different groups have their own perhaps way of doing it that they've established and they're fine with. When you go to the group as a newcomer, your method is perhaps quite different. And let's not even start on having a group leader. Well, I was about to say, I mean, like you have a group leader or a corner or whatever, you clearly need a party treasurer. And the yeah. treasurer perhaps has the donkey that's got the panniers on it that's filled with all this loot and just leads it around. They've got the ledger that they write all this stuff down in at the end of it. They handle the selling to merchants, uh, the gems, they can split it up into gold pieces and dish it out to everyone equitably. You need a qualified accountant in every dungeoneering group. Well, you're making a joke of it, but I think you kind of do, actually. That's what I did in Tomb of Annihilation. (laughs) Not quite to the level that where I cashed it all in and and shared it out, but I said, right, I'm just going to keep track of all this stuff because I could see that we weren't writing stuff down and some of it was important. But it is kind of a job in the game to keep track of that stuff. My suggested solution... I've not run D&D for a while, but if I were to do it now, I think what I'd probably do is just every bit of treasure, not like every gold piece, but every like cache of treasure, write it on a an index card, throw it at the players. And then it kind of doesn't get forgotten. It's a physical index card that they've kind of got and they can say, okay, you have that, you have that. If nobody takes it, it's just kind of sat on the table in the middle because sometimes these things are, it's not just monetary worth, it's something that is an item that is important later in the game. Mm. Particularly with things that aren't identified. you got a potion. Is it poison? Is it healing? Is it a potion of flying? You know, you've got to then sort of identify it to tell what it is. And if you haven't taken note of it and where you found it and so on, it's a complicated life, I tell you, being a D&D adventurer. 
you investigators have got it easy. <laughs> Flipping stuff around, though, as GMs or as scenario writers, how do we decide what kind of loot or rewards or treasures to put in our games? And I'm talking not just in terms of D&D &D dungeons and the loot there, but in terms of, say, the artifacts and tomes that you might discover in Call of Cthulhu, or if it's a science mm. fiction game like Traveller or Cyberpunk, what equipment and so on that you might find there. Because ultimately, there's some element of this in most RPGs. In terms of Cthulhu, particularly as, as a GM, the main way I approach items like that, whether it be books or tomes or other weird artefacts, is what purpose does it serve in the story and how can the antagonist use it and how are they using it to try and achieve their ends? If there's no point, like if it's just something that's sat on a shelf, I don't bother. If it's something that actively plays a part in the story, then I'll weave it into the narrative. If the PCs get hold of it at the end of it, that's fine. I've had a couple of games where the players will go over every book they've looted from a cultist library and start mm. looking at it going, oh, what spells can we learn in here? I think, okay, well, you've got X, Y, and Z spells. They might learn them and work out, oh, the cost on that's a bit high. I'm probably not going to cast that. Or, oh, this effect doesn't really do anything for me. But it had an effect, obviously, for the antagonist to do what they wanted. So they can get hold of this stuff and they might not ever use it, which is fine by me. They've spent the time learning it. It's an option in their arsenal, like an arrow in their quiver. But if they never fire it, I'm not bothered. Hmm. What about yourself, Scott, when it comes to giving out artefacts or tomes? It depends an awful lot. Yes, I agree with Matt there that if I'm writing a scenario that's got a particular antagonist or a particular group in it, then I'll definitely think about what they require. But sometimes I'm also thinking about what would be interesting for the player characters, whether that's just something that's going to push them down an interesting path in terms of the overall game or something that's going to bring interesting kinds of trouble into their life whether that's a mythos artifact that is sort of intelligent or cursed in some way or has got its own agenda that is going to be both useful and a bane to the player characters sometimes or just things that are going to intrigue the player characters or give them options. So, for example, I've been running the meat trade for Ain't Slayed Nobody recently. That's the scenario I wrote for World War Cthulhu London ages ago. And there is, at some point, a cache of items that the player characters can discover. It's not even something that belongs to an antagonist. It's something that belongs to a potential ally who may or may not be dead at that point of the game, but they can discover her flat and all sorts of potentially cool stuff that's in there. And I took this as an opportunity to provide what would be 
relatively ordinary investigators at the start of a game with some armaments by having her have an arsenal there. She has a mythos tome with a lot of annotations in there that they can use to get useful information. But also threw in a few random things like a weird skull that I just put in there for colour that when I've been running it, the players have been absolutely obsessed with. They keep thinking the skull is really mm. important and they've carried it around with them and treasured it and stuff like that. And it's been quite cool from that respect. It's done absolutely nothing for them, but it's brought them some degree of excitement and interest in the game. So that's cool from that perspective. One day, though, Yorick is going to speak to them. <laughs> but other times, you mentioned another scenario that I wrote a while back where there's the potential to get quite a lot of gold at some point in it, and I deliberately put that in there as a way of making sure that the player characters for the rest of the campaign wouldn't have to worry about money, that there wouldn't be that situation we were talking about before where it's international travel, we need to go to the other side of the globe, but you know we've got 10 pence, how are we going to do this? By setting them up with enough money, potentially at the start of the campaign, that they've got the resources they need to actually complete the campaign without stopping and going off on complete tangents to try to finance themselves. These are the kinds of things that I think about. It is very much what purpose it's going to serve in the larger game or what kind of fun it's going to bring to the player characters and the players. Mm. How about you, Paul? Like you said, going off on tangents to sort of figure how you're going to pay this money or you know get this transatlantic flight or, or, or ship... If it's just an accountancy thing, then yeah, that's quite dull. But obviously having to get that stuff could lead you into some interesting avenues of story. And I'm quite intrigued by that. But I think it is it is quite a hard thing to make up on the fly. But at the same time, it can introduce, perhaps you need to sort of plan for it, but it can introduce some interesting NPCs, especially you know if you're having to sort of get in with the wrong crowd just to maybe tell them about what you're doing. And then, you know, they're going to fund you. You know, I go to some like conspiracy obsessed, crazy rich person and tell them what I'm actually doing. And then they fund me. But, you know, how much trouble is that going to add to my life? The next thing I know, they've posted about what I'm doing on Facebook or something. <laughs> I just sort of think that could add a lot of interesting story bits, particularly if they're kind of a little bit prepped in advance. You know, I know my players aren't going to be able to afford to do this thing. Here's some interesting ways that are going to cause them trouble that they could actually solve that. I think the classic thing for giving players that I've seen in a few Call of Cthulhu scenarios is the lightning gun. You know, it's <laughs> Ithian, isn't it? Ithian yes. lightning gun. And it's like, yes, it's a great weapon that the enemy have that they fire at you and bloody fry people particularly NPCs, a good illustration of how it works when they fry an NPC, then as players, you get one. Well, that's good. But they're quite hard to handle as a human being because they're not really designed for our puny arms or digits. And they do have a tendency to explode, <laughs> which is, you know, fun. And a lot of Call of Cthulhu things, I think, are like that. You know, you mentioned the spells, Matt. Yeah, you can learn spells, but A, they have a, a sanity cost. And B, you know, using the magic can have other negative impacts on players are kind of corruptive forces 
And also, you know, we see, we do see that obviously in D&D as well. There are some cursed items, but, you know, things like a deck of many things where I can't resist taking a card because yeah. I just don't care if my character is halfway through Ravenloft and then gets turned into a fucking bugbear. <laughs> you know, that may have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of love that stuff. Yeah. But obviously, you know, not everybody is going to love that stuff. So I think maybe, you know, I, I guess if you're playing those kind of games, you know that this thing might not be safe. And certainly when we were writing The Two-Headed Serpent, I took that as license to come up with as many weird items as I could and just scatter them throughout the campaign because I knew that as a player that's the kind of thing that I'd like coming across these weird alien artifacts or magical items that do things that I kind of half understand that may be useful in different circumstances but also sometimes backfire in really hideous ways or may come with a terrible cost and just the complications that those are going to bring into the game as a player i love that shit i'm all over it and they're very appropriate to pulp right yeah i mean a they're very appropriate in pulp those kind of weird items that backfire and b as a pulp investigator pulp hero you can withstand that even mm. if it blows up and does you horrendous damage as long as you've got 30 luck you can explain as a player how your character survived that terrible thing and comes back in the next scene but no flame gun ever had the same impact than when it was held by a howler monkey yes but I think the important thing there, if you're handing out these cursed items or items that come with the cost or risk backfiring, is that they are interesting and fun and have got quirks and twists and imagination to them. I remember my early days of playing D&D. I mean, I don't know if this is still as much the case in 5th edition, but in the original AD&D, there were lots of cursed items that you could encounter that looked very much the same as valuable magic items that you might encounter, like cursed swords that would do hideous things to you and so on, that fundamentally didn't do anything interesting. They would just provide you with a, a mechanical deficit that they'd lower a stat or lower your level or something like that. And that I never found particularly interesting. It just felt like a gotcha. It was sort of, oh, yeah, I've just found this really cool looking ring that will probably let me cast fireballs. But, oh, actually, no, it's just taking five points off my strength. Yay. And I can't take it off. Mork Borg does some fun things like that where you have random loot tables that you can roll on. Some of them which look pretty damn nice. Like, oh, there's this crown that you can put on. But yeah, it kind of knackers your spine because it's so heavy and it now has other negative effects that it does as well. And it's pretty damn horrendous. There's very, very few decent, well, I say decent in inverted commas, let's say helpful and useful items that you can pick up in that game. They're basically out to shaft you in any way you pick them up. But I guess they do bad things in interesting ways, is that right? Oh, some of them are quite amusing, but while they're amusing, they're definitely not beneficial. <laughs> what Matt means is he finds that funny. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> There's a reason I love that game. 
But I think the best kinds of items in those cases are the ones where you do find them useful in certain circumstances, that you find this wonderful magic dagger that, yes, will allow you to do additional damage or detect enemies or something like that, but it's just every week or whatever you've got to use it to sacrifice a living entity, or every time you use it you've got to cut one of your own fingers off with it or something like that, and it's... Yes, yes, it's useful, but ooh, I, I wish I hadn't found it. <laughs> so what you said, I think you said, Scott, it should be interesting and fun in games. I mean, this is a radical approach. <laughs> <laughs> but it strikes me that a lot of that early D&D stuff, it wasn't. It was, how can I fuck over the players and make them feel like twats for having found this stuff? And some of the cursed items, yes, were interesting or quirky or whatever, but most of them were just dull. I think a lot of that comes down to how it's handled at the table and the players' expectations in the game. Like Matt's saying with Morkborg, people expect that shit to happen. Mm. And when you put on this crown and it, I don't know, it sucks your spine out or whatever, <laughs> then everybody's going to laugh. And, and that was a good fun because your player was quite expendable. And yeah. so it kind of depends on the the mood of the, the table. And if the GM's using it as a thing to punish players, well, that's never going to be good. I can see that being fun in a game like Paranoia, for example, where if you pick up a random item that um, looks cool, you'd kind of be disappointed if it didn't fuck you over in some way. Depends what colour it is as well. Do you have the appropriate security clearance for that gun, Citizen? So as players, we've talked a lot about GMs, but as players, is finding all this shiny loot important to us? To be honest, not really, because I'm quite a lazy player. I don't want to write all that shit down on my character sheet and have to keep track of it. <laughs> I'd quite happily just get information and solve puzzles. That's the main thing for me. I guess if it's just money, it's not so interesting sometimes. Depends what you're doing with it. Depends what it has the potential to do in the game. So if I can spend it on interesting things, then yeah, that's good. If there's things that I want that can help my character, if it's that kind of game. Or if it's interesting tomes, you know, people always light up when they see tomes hmm. and artifacts and so on in Call of Cthulhu, I think, or at least some individuals do, looking at Matt. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can learn interesting stuff from that and cause havoc at the table. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same there. If it's something weird and unique and so on, then yes, I'll want to play with that and well, throw myself into it and don't care about the risk and so on because I want something fun to happen at the table. But I was thinking about this in general terms, because not a tabletop role-playing game, but I recently started playing Fallout New Vegas for the first time in Donkey's Years, which is a computer role-playing game. And that sort of loot-based resource management is a really important part of it, that you spend a lot of time finding random caches of money and weapons or taking items off slain enemies and some of them are resources that you can use to make other things some of them are just items that you can sell and get more money to buy the things that you want or, or things you can use yourself and it's a core part of the game this is a big part of the character advancement picking up more and more loot and items and better weapons and stuff like that and better armor it got me thinking about how much of a slog that can be during a game because you spend an awful lot of time in the game managing that and it's a weird 
sort of mixture of the satisfaction of, oh yeah, there's this neat stuff I can do now that I couldn't do before, or these enemies that would slaughter me on sight are now manageable. But at the same time, there's so much work that goes into actually setting all that up that it feels fiddly. I don't mind it so much in a computer game, but in a tabletop role-playing game where it's going to be much more of a social activity for me and creative problem solving and stuff like that, I really don't want to be bogged down by all of that stuff. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage, and we have a number of new Patreon backers to thank by name. And first off, a big thanks going out to Anna Kuhn. Apologies if we mispronounce any names. Do let us know if we do, and we will give it another shot in a future episode. And also thank you very much to Willow Bailey. And thank you very much to Blake Roberts. And thanks to Matthew Cox. And thank you very much to Brian Mathena. Hopefully again, pronounce that right. And thank you finally to Gavin Oliver. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, please do let people know. Whether this means posting a review somewhere where you get your podcast from, just letting people know about it on social media, or just slightly slipping it into conversation at some stage into an unsuspecting pair of ears, we would be absolutely delighted. And if you manage to get it into a D&D or any party's loot vest, that they find amongst their hoard of treasure this flyer for a certain podcast, that would also be great. Sound advice, Matt. So you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias, and until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes. Mm-hmm.